This episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is brought to you by Hoosier Devil, supporting and promoting Roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, Hoosier Devil offers a variety of services including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit them on social media or at HoosierDevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Who's your devil? Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Field interviews with the best in bluegrass. There is no bigger living legend in bluegrass than banjo great Sonny Osborne. Along with his brother Bobby, they formed the Osborne Brothers in the 1950s and went on to become one of the most influential artists in the field. Huge hits like Rocky Top helped make them a household name. Sonny retired from music in 2003, but his legacy lives on as both a member of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame and the Grand Ole Opry. Daniel Mullen sat down with Sonny on his back porch for a two-part interview during a rainy Saturday afternoon at his home outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Sonny shares his knowledge of the music industry, his business savvy, and personal music history with fellow legends like Bill Monroe, Jimmy Martin, and more. Let's head to Sonny's back porch for this episode of Walls of Time. Why do you think it's important to take risks in the music business? Risks, what do you mean? Whether musically or in business, why do you think it's important to take risks? It seems like that's something a lot of people, especially in bluegrass, might be hesitant to do. Well, if you've got confidence in what you're doing, then there is no risk. you should also have the brains to figure out whether that risk is worth taking or not. And if if you can't do that, you need to hire somebody that does have those kind of brains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, if you don't take a risk, you can never achieve everything you want to achieve, the way I look at it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to take a chance sometimes. Mm-hmm. You just have to. If you don't, you'll just stay where you are forever and that don't get it the osborne brothers y'all took a lot of risks musically but one of your business biggest business risks had to do with the song rocky top didn't it yeah it did um we gave up um leadership from the wilburn brothers to record that song and we didn't have enough faith in it but it was just the idea that we wanted to i told Boudreaux we would record that song and we did Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I, and when you tell somebody something, you better mean it, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, Doyle and Teddy, neither one, Wilburn, uh, they neither one wanted to do it. They wanted us to do all Surefire songs. That was and their publishing company. That wasn't was it? a publishing company, yeah. And that was our agreement. We agreed to do that, and every song that we had done up to that point was a surefire song, mm-hmm. every one of them. And, uh, but I asked Boudlow if he had anything, and he said he had that song almost finished, and I said, finish it. This was on a Monday. I said, finish it, and we're going to record Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And so November 16th, 19... 19- 67, he brought that song over that morning and we recorded it that afternoon. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a bad choice. <laughs> what was Teddy and Dole's reaction when you brought that one in the studio? When uh, we, had over, we had probably made two other cuts or one other, and, uh, and so we re- were rehearsing that song and Teddy Wilburn came out of the studio and he said, what's this? And I said, it's a Boodle Bryant song. And the, the weird thing about it is we did my favorite memory, which was the other side of the record. Yeah. And that was a surefire song written by Daryl Statler in uh, Texas college kid. And, uh, Richard Statler, Daryl, Richard Statler. And, uh, Teddy just said, well, that's not a surefire song. I said, no, it's not, but we're going to record it. 
And he said, well, I'll have no part of this. And he left. Wow. He left the studio. And uh, Doyle stayed for a little bit. And if my memory serves me right, he left too. Wow. And so that was the end of our association with the Wilburn Brothers. We didn't, you know, they didn't like it. And we recorded everything that they wanted us to record up to that point. And uh, we just felt we didn't really have that much faith in Rocky Top. We, we were looking for a ballad. And in those days, if you had a, an up-tempo song that made the charts, it would go on the chart and rock back off. Just kind of flash. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you got a ballad, sometimes that thing would stay on there. Well, uh, Fraulein stayed on a year. Yeah. It stayed on the chart for a year. Uh, and other songs did the same thing, and that's what we were looking for. Yeah. We'd had chart action before, and so we were looking for that chart record. We, we really needed it. And so... Um, we recorded Rocky Top, and they had the other side of it. And I didn't think they had much of a gripe because they had the other side of it. Yeah. And if Rocky Top sold 12 million, they sold 12 million. Totally, yeah. And so I couldn't see the point. I just couldn't. Um, we took the record to Ralph Emery, who had the all-night show on WSM at that time. Mm -hmm. And he played the... Uh, my favorite memory and he said let's turn it over and I told him I said well, we're trying to push that favorite memory song and he said oh, let's turn it over one time and see what happens and he turned it over and that was the last of my favorite memory <laughs> I mean it just yeah. took off after that and I can appreciate Ralph for doing that but I, I kind of wanted favorite memories really made and it did <laughs> yeah. it sold the same thing it sold as just many right here I am getting into the same thing the Wilmers did <laughs> but um, you talk about taking chances and things like that well it seemed like we were taking some wild chances with like electric instruments and drums and piano and yeah. all that stuff we really weren't though because the record label which was Decca and Decca was one of the biggest labels in maybe in the world because it's an English company. And so we weren't really taking a big risk. We just said we'd like to do that. And Owen Bradley said, well, you're healthy enough to do it. Healthy. Yeah. We were selling, selling enough records. Selling yeah. enough. And at that time we were, we were selling about 40000 for every single that we did. Wow. And then we were... We would come back and sell another forty for an album, wow. and uh, so we and then the the better singles were would sell a little bit more, yeah, fifty two, fifty one, and something like that. And then when Rocky Top came out, I mean it just skyrocketed, and uh, so as far as taking a risk, we might have, but you see where where I think that we were successful in a quote risk unquote was that we never put those instruments down. The banjo and the mandolin. Never, never did. Other than just on a specific song that needed something yeah. else. But as far as going on the road and all like that, we never took anything else other than our bluegrass stuff on the road. That's all we did. You you added, you didn't take away. We added on record. Yeah. And and there was a there was a motive to that too. Um back in 61, maybe, whenever we used the first steel guitar and drums, was a, a time in country music to where that we almost threatened people to get our records played and couldn't. They wouldn't play them. Yeah. And so um, about that time, rock and roll had cooled just a little bit and a lot of stations, pop stations, were going country. Okay. And so, and they hired a music director who didn't know what he was talking about. He had no idea what country music was. Lots of stations that were doing that, yeah. That's exactly right. And I mean, there, there was something like 
80 a week or something like that, stations that were going from pop to country. And they would hire these music directors who didn't know country from Adam. Yeah. And so what they would do is put it on. I saw them do it. They'd put it, get a record in, put it on. If they heard a steel guitar or piano or fiddle, that was country, they'd play it. Yeah. And so I thought, well, why don't we add that? And maybe they'll play our record too, not listen to the whole thing and realize it's old dirty bluegrass. Yeah. And so they'll do that. And at that same time, Carlton Haney, who was running these huge package shows uh, through Carolina and Georgia, South Carolina and other places, Oklahoma, he did some shows there, Ohio. And so he decided that he was going to have some bluegrass on his show and he chose us. And so it all worked together because we added those instruments and they would listen to it and they hear the steel guitar, okay, this is country, yeah. we'll play this. And they did. And it worked. It worked like a charm for us. It really did. Um, and we finally got to that. The, well, first of all, the prime position on the Carlton Haney, and when I said Carlton Haney had these huge shows, he'd have 12 or 13 country, I mean yeah. big time country acts on there. Haggard and Conway, Loretta right. and all Loretta that Loretta and all that. I mean, every week, Sonny James, and I mean, but we finally, with Rocky Top, got into closing the first half, which is the prime spot in those package shows. Really? Yeah. When you close the first half, you have their attention. By the time the second half rolls around, they're either woozy or sleepy or ready to go home. Yeah. And so, or staggering back in after getting a drink or supper. Oh, or 18 drinks. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got to closing that first half. I remember in Greenville, South Carolina, one time, Johnny Paycheck, who had... Um, I think it was A11 at the time. He had a hit record right then. Yeah. And so we were on on the little platform being ready to be, to be inter introduced. And Paycheck's a good friend of mine. And so he came up and he said, you know what, I don't understand something. And I said, what's that, John? He said, how come you're closing the first half and I've got a hit record right now and I'm not? And I said, John, I don't know. And when we came off and did Rocky Top, it was like a jet plane going over. I mean, just, <laughs> you know, the crowd went, went crazy. And when I came back out there, he was standing there, out there, and he called me a name, of which I won't repeat here. <laughs> and I said, John, that's why we're closing the first half. <laughs> he told me what I could do. So, anyway, uh, but as far as you mentioned about taking chances, like if Joe didn't take a chance, your dad, if he didn't take a chance, he wouldn't be where he is. Mm -hmm. If you didn't, you wouldn't be. I mean, everybody, you have to make up your mind what you want to do and try to go about the best way that you know how to do it. Yeah. So. Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's Hair Care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins's hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not over powering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. And now back to Walls of Time. You mentioned getting to play those uh, those country package shows, and you mentioned adding the, the steel and the drums to your records. Um, particularly by the early 60s, you know, you said that rock and roll had kind of calmed down just a little bit, but bluegrass was still really struggling in the wake of, uh, you know, the Elvis wave that, that tore across the country. Um, 
y'all were one of the only bluegrass bands getting played on country radio, period. Probably y'all and Flat and & Scruggs and maybe about it. You know? Flat & Scruggs not hardly as much right then, but then the Beverly Hillbillies really helped them. We didn't have that, though. Yeah. We had no movie. We had no TV. We had nothing but Rocky Tom. That was later, of course, but uh, but we were lucky when when like I told you, we added those instruments and they thought we were country, and they played them, and we had you know what, this probably needs to be checked out a little further, but I really think this is true. Flat and Scruggs put twenty one songs in the national chart. We put twenty two. <laughs> 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 I mean, they didn't go to the top, but they made the national charts, and that's yeah. more than anybody else can say. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you mentioned that Rocky Top was a Felice and Boodle O'Brien song, and you mentioned before that um, there was a lot of value at that time in recording Felice and Boodle O'Brien songs. Why was that? Because when you recorded one of their songs, they would buy about 10,000 singles from the record company. And they had the country divided up into four different areas. Northwest, Southwest, Northeast, Southeast. And they had men hired in each area. And they would buy all these records of, let's say a round figure of 10,000. I think that's what it was, but I wasn't certain about that. And then they would give each one of those guys a portion of those records, of those single records that you had out. And there would be their song, of course. And these guys would go, in that day and time, it's not like that anymore, but in that day and time, if when you had a record out, you took it to a disc jockey and gave it to him, say, here, play this. Mm -hmm. And he would. Well, those guys would go in their area to almost every country station that existed in that area and give them one of those records. And uh, it was so important. And then Boudlow, uh bought a, I don't know if it was a half page or a whole page in Billboard magazine, in Record World, and Cashbox at that same time. And so all of that... All of that stuff is, I want to say it's almost like a con game, but it's not. It's just um, good business. It's just yeah. good business. He knew what he was doing and successful at it, yeah. and and that's what they did. And, and we recorded, um, well, let me go back. After Rocky Top hit, all right, he called me, and he said, do you have tomorrow off? And I said, well, we're doing an operator tonight. And I said, yeah, we can. And he said, come up to Gatlinburg. Mm-hmm. And so Gatlinburg Inn is where Rocky Top was written. And that's where they were. <laughs> I don't remember. It seemed like it was 418 was a room number, but I don't, I don't know about that. But anyway, uh, we went up, Judy and I went up there, and we went in the room, and he said, I have these songs written for you, as follow-up to Rocky Top. And I think there was, well, Tennessee Hound Dog was one, Georgia Pony Woods, Muddy Bottom. I mean, I, I can't remember how many. It seemed like there was nine more yeah. in a row. That, I mean, just, and he was like that. Budo was a genius, self-made too. And and he, he like the Everly Brothers, he got them started with Wake Up Little Susie or whatever it was, Bye Bye Love. And then he wrote a dozen more after that, and, oh, it, and just kept them right. Not on the carbon chart. copies, but in the s- like, similar in the vein. Same vein, yeah. Same stuff. Georgia Pony Woods and and Tennessee Hound Dog, and I mean, on and I mean, it just was unreal. Yeah. And uh, naturally, because there was such a um, big thing with Rocky Top to these disc jockeys, when they got another record boss, they played it. Yeah. And so uh, one mistake we made, Bobby had written a song called Son of a Sawmill Man. Yeah, yeah. And so that was our follow-up to Rocky Top. And we we should have, he won't like this, Bobby won't, but, you know, we should have been more careful to what the follow-up to Rocky Top was. 
but we were just children having a good time. That's what we were doing. And we were, had started to really succeed in our business thing and things were going right. And so we thought we couldn't do any wrong. Well, we did though, because Son of a Sawmill Man should have hit, but it didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was another song we had, it's a Boodle song too. It was called I Can Hear Kentucky Calling Me. Oh yeah. And that should have hit, it should have. I think I messed it up producing it though because I had too much going on. Yeah. I had too much stuff going on, but it should have hit and it didn't. I'm sorry it didn't too. That had been 23. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've been taking risks in this business for a long time, starting back to you getting your first job with, with Monroe. That was a big risk. That you took. How old were you? Fifteen. Fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah, uh, that's that was kind of interesting. My dad originally was a uh, educator, school teacher, and uh, so and, and I really wanted an education. But the banjo came along, and I put a lot of hours. I would I would practice so much my fingers would bleed, and. Uh, I learned it pretty quick. And so the thing with Bill Monroe came up and uh, Bill asked my dad if I could go and work with him throughout the summer mm -hmm. when I was 14, ninth grade summer. And uh, no, it was a, yeah, ninth grade, ninth grade summer. And yeah, go ahead. So I went to Nashville, I never had been away from home in my life, ever, scared completely, just petrified. And so I came in July and I went back home in September to go back to school in the 10th grade. And I stayed there until March. And then Bill Monroe was gonna play in Toledo, I think it was Toledo. And he came through Dayton and he was shy one guy and they stopped and asked if I could go to Toledo with him to play the banjo. Jim Smoke was playing the bass at that time. He was their banjo player but he played the bass on that. And so my dad said, yeah, I'll go ahead. So I went and came back and then when I came back uh, Bill asked him if I could go to work with him regular, on a regular basis. And he said yes, but that meant I had to quit school in the three or four months into the 10th grade. And and so I wondered about this my whole life. I never did ask him, why did you let me go? Why did you do that? I really wanted to go to college and get a good education, but um, that banjo came first. And so I don't regret it, but you know what? You talk about taking a chance and I didn't realize it because I was too young to even think like that. But looking at it from an adult standpoint, that was a big chance to take. Absolutely. It was a big chance to take. And I, so here I am working for Bill Monroe, which is completely unstable and with a ninth grade education. And, uh, and so, what was I going to do after that? Yeah. I never thought about that. And I, it seems to me as though my dad would have, though. Yeah. He would have thought that way, but he didn't. And uh, it worked out. It worked out pretty good. Uh, I stayed until that was in March or, March or April. And I stayed until uh, October when Bobby got out of the Marine Corps. And uh, they stopped through Nashville on the way home, and I thought, "Uh, -uh I'm gonna go. I'm going home." I didn't like, I didn't like the whole setup with Bill Monroe. It was it was Jimmy Martin and Bill, and Charlie Klein, Ellie White, and Bessie, and which was just not a a really good. I saw I saw things that young kids shouldn't see, mm -hmm. you know. And so, and I, I was, I wanted to go home and I did. I never told them goodbye neither. I just left after the Opry. That's Saturday night. We got in the car and left. 
and that's all there was you, to it. You told me before that uh, one of those nights with Monroe, you wound up in jail one of the nights. Oh, that was uh, that was the first time I was with him. I was, that was we were supposed to play in Raleigh at the number one drive-in theater in Raleigh, and we were late. And and I was driving, and 14 years old, I didn't have any driver's license. And Bill's in the back of, we're going to be late. We're going to be late. And and he had a 52 Chrysler, that big Chrysler. Boy, is that a nice car. <laughs> and I mean, Especially it, for a 14-year-old. Oh, right? it would run. Oh, man. And I was probably doing 90 or something like that, and I looked out the rear of room here and here comes a, a fifty a fifty one Chevrolet and the front of it was raised up. He was doing everything he could do. And that blue light was on top of that thing. And I said, There's there's a cop back here. It pulled over then and I pulled over and that cop said, um, You in a hurry? Yeah, we're late. And he said, let me see your driver's license. And I said, I don't have any. And he looked at Bill in the back. He said, do you own this car? And said, yes, sir. Did you know he didn't have it? No, I didn't know it at all. <laughs> he lied. I mean, you know. And that cop said, well, you're going to have to go with me. And he said, I hate to arrest a 14-year-old kid, but you're under arrest. And so it was in Burlington, North Carolina. And they took me to jail, you know. And uh, after the show that night, then they sent he Bill sent Charlie Klein and uh, Jimmy Martin back to get me at that jail. Fine was sixty five dollars, and that's what I was supposed to be making. No, I was supposed to make sixty a week, and I never got that at all. He never paid me sixty a week. I'd have to go to him and ask him for money. And. Uh, it came time when I asked him. He said, well, you, you owe me $65 for that fine. And I got to thinking, you owe my... And I, at that time, I'd learned a few words. <laughs> and so... so <laughs> unrepeatable, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and... But he... I had to pay that fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was... Bill was just a... Uh, really hard man to work with, you know, work for. Uh, but I didn't regret leaving. I'd have done it again, you know. But I wanted to go home. And then um, it was the middle or late October. I can't remember when it was. And uh, Bobby was going to, he called it muster out of the Marine Corps on at the end of October. And so I had contacted Cash Walker in Knoxville, and uh, he wanted us to come to work. So November the 6th, 1953, that was the beginning, and that's that's what we did. We went to Knoxville, 25 bucks a week for the whole band. Oh boy! It, it it was tough sled when you guys first started. Of course, for it a was. Lo- for a long time. We couldn't. I mean, you know, the secret is drawing people, mm-hmm. and when you go play somewhere, have crowds, and when they they don't nobody's ever heard of you, they're not going to come out and pay their money to see you. So, we'd go play these places, and sometimes they're all on percentage, and sometimes our part would be. $11 or $14, you know, yeah. and we'd split it up. It's me and Bobby and Enos Johnson and L.E. White to begin with. And then we'd split it up four ways and then go to the circle, which was a crystal kind of yeah. restaurant. They made their little hamburgers. Little sliders and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And we'd go to this blue circle there in Knoxville and spend it all <laughs> on, on however many we could get and milk. And then we'd go get in the bed still right there the next day. Y- y'all worked in Knoxville and Detroit and Whelan. And uh, it eventually, uh, it was still tough sledding. And y'all, uh, Bobby wound up driving a cab again. And Dayton, Me too. And you too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I learned a lot 
about people driving a cab. Really? I really did. Like what? A whole lot. Uh, well, they would talk, mm-hmm. and 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 you could the smart guys you could tell, and I learned from them. I learned a lot of things, you know, about life and and travel, things like that. And these guys would talk about stuff like that. And I'm driving, you know, a cab and and listening, paying attention. So and, when uh, so when Cordell wrote that song, Jesus and bartenders here at all, he should have added Jesus, bartenders, and cab drivers here at yeah. all, right? <laughs> uh, we were also we were driving cabs, but we were also playing um, bars there in Dayton yeah. at the same time on the weekend. And uh, it is, wasn't. Is bad. that when you worked for uh, our pal Chubby Howard in Franklin? Uh, one time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure did. I tried. I got drunk and tried to play the steel. One night. <laughs> it was his steel too. <laughs> that's a that's a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but all working all them bars and honky tonks and Dayton's driving uh, the cabs. Did you ever get to the point where you thought is is this worth it just to play the banjo? Well, not at that time. Um, Let's see, it was 1959, maybe. Uh, No, it was later than that. Anyway, maybe 59. We uh, were playing at Wheeling, too. Mm -hmm. We're driving a cab and doing the Saturday thing at Wheeling and working a few dates here and there. And then working the bars when we could. Working yourselves to death is what we it sounds were, like. We were learning our trade. Yeah. That's what we were doing. And uh, we played once in um, Newark, New Jersey at the some ballroom there. I remember it. And then as we came out of the door when the show was over, we came out the door and Doyle and Teddy were standing there. And... Uh, uh, Doyle introduced himself, and Teddy did too. And and so it was me and Bobby and Red Allen at that time. And uh, Doyle said, "What are you guys at?" And we just, you know, and just a couple days before that, we played East Patterson, New Jersey. And we, no, I'm sorry, I got that turned around. Doyle, we wound up, we talked a few minutes, and he said asked what we were doing and we told him who we were booking with and all that stuff he said if you ever want to change give me a call he gave Bobby a card so then after that maybe six months or whatever after that sometime after that we were playing East Patterson New Jersey and it was just so just miserable and we were Bobby and I were laying in this motel room and it was probably two o'clock or two thirty three o'clock in the morning and uh I said, man, you know what? What are we going to do? We're not going anywhere. We're just spiraling down. And he said, I know. And so I said, do you still have that card that Dora Wilburn gave you? And he said, yeah, I got it. I said, let me have that thing. And he gave me that card, and I called Dora right then. It Two was in his, the morning. <laughs> it was his home number, yeah. <laughs> And he said, you big ass old bitch. He said, do you know what time it is? And I said, yeah, I know. But you told me if we ever wanted to change, to call you. And I said, we want to change. If you wait till morning, you might not want to change. And he said, where are you at? And I told him, and he said, are you going home from here? And I said, yeah, we're going home, going home tomorrow. And he said, and that would be a Sunday, Saturday night or Sunday. And he said, Call me Monday, and I called him Monday, and he said, okay. And we had been begging for the Grand Ole Opry. I mean, Wesley Rose, Roy Acuff. That was the crown jewel. That, that was the, We had to yeah, have it. You had to have it we to survive to in, it, yeah. in that, that time, yeah. And, I mean, the Grand Ole Opry, after your name, was just, that was 40 or 50 days a year. Easy. That, that, Plus the radio exposure oh, to half the country. Unreal. Yeah. And everybody was listening. WSM went went out all over the place. That anyway, uh, he said, "Call me Monday," and I did. And he said, "Can you be in Nashville this weekend?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, I've got you as a guest on the Opry uh, 
I don't know if it was Friday and Saturday, but Friday. And he said, then Saturday uh, or Sunday, I think, I think it was Sunday. He said, Sunday, uh, I've got you lined up to do the Air Force. They do uh, they tape shows. And I said, I've got you lined up to do the Air Force thing on Sunday. And he did this in just a, a few days. Yeah. And I thought to myself, that's... That's where we need to be. That's the type of guy you want to be. Yeah. And yeah. so we came and did those things. And then I told uh, Doyle, I said, we, we have to have the Grand Ole Opry. And he said, give me 18 months. And if I can't get you on the Opry in 18 months, then you go do As, as a member, you. right? Yeah. If he can't get yeah. you a member. For me, full blown, yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, I, that sequence, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but he called, I don't know when it was, or it had to be been in, in before July. It had to be in the middle of July of 1964. And he called and he said, can you be here on this weekend to do the Opry? And I said, yeah, we sure can. And he said, well, you need to bring suits and ties and something like that because he said you have a meeting with Alt Devine who was the head of the opera at that time on uh, Thursday, I think it was. Thursday. He said, can you be here? I said, I'll be there tomorrow if you need me. And uh, me and Bobby and Benny Birchfield took off and went to Nashville. We had the meeting with Alt and he's sitting there and, you know, all leaning back like that. He said... Well, boys, we've decided to make you all a member of the Grand Ole Opry's family. And I thought, holy. <laughs> I thought some more stuff, too. And I thought, man, is this really happening? And and Doyle said, you're members of the Opry. Wow. And it was 13 months is what it was. He got us on. It took him 13 months, but he got us on the Opry. Wow. And um, it's a funny thing because I think it was Paul Williams or J.D. Crow, one of them. They were in a room with Jimmy Martin and Barbara, <laughs> and Bill Anderson. They were listening to the Opry, and uh, Bill Anderson introduced us as the. Newest members of the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> I think it was J.D. He said, man, you could have struck a match on Jimmy's face. <laughs> and see, Jimmy was obsessed with the Grand Ole Opry. He really was. And it was only, he, he, Jimmy Martin could have gone further than all of us combined. Because really? he had charisma. Yeah. People wanted, he just, it was like a magnet. But he was rude to people. And he, and Jimmy drank too much. He just really did. He just couldn't get out of his own way. But he was his own worst enemy. He had a chip on his shoulder that he thought the whole world was against him. And uh, and there was a story going around that he and Aunt were fishing and hunting buddies when Jimmy was with Bill Monroe and Aunt was an announcer. And so they made Aunt the head of the Grand Ole, the manager of the Grand Ole Opry. And so the next time Jimmy was in Nashville, they were backstage and Art was walking and Jimmy came up behind him and punched him in the ribs like that. And when Art came down off the ceiling and Jimmy told him, he said, sport, I'm here in Nashville now and you can put me on any time you want to. And when Art came back down, he said, you, mm-mm. he said, not only will you never be a member of the opera as long as I live, your records will never be played again, and I'm going to try to get you barred from here. Wow. You never come up and punch somebody in the ribs and scare them to death. Wow. And that was that was the fat lady that sung for Jimmy wow. right there. And I, I hate it in a way, but I really respect the Grand Ole Opry, and I love it. Always have. I think it's the greatest thing that has ever happened. And um, 
especially the country music, but I mean all kinds of music, everything. Uh, and if somebody is banned for the Opry, I'm against that. That that uh, in your in your eyes could disgrace or bring it shame could. or embarrass it. Yeah. And I think he would. I think he would have. Uh, but he might not have. You know, it's just that's my opinion. Everything I say is my opinion. I'm not going on anything else but just my opinion. And uh, there was other people that I thought was bad for the Opry too. I thought Merle Haggard would have been a genius yeah. at the Opry. But he wouldn't do it. It's so funny when you look in that era, folks like Haggard and Buck that made it so big that they didn't need the Opry. No, they you didn't know. need them. The Opry really needed them. The Opry them. needed them. There was, there was a, there's some of them that, you know, particularly those that came out of Bakersfield or that West Coast. Do you think folks in Nashville kind of resented Buck and Merle for being able to make it without Nashville's help? I don't think so. You don't think so? The Opry might have. Okay. The, the, the Opry in general. Yeah. Not the members of the Opry, no. Yeah, not the members. No. I mean the 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 establishment or the no, man. You know. I don't. I. You don't think so? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Because we, as a as a huge bunch of people, all country singers and bluegrass singers put together, we we know what it takes to make it. Yeah. And you know when somebody does, it, it it's to me. I always think, man, that's good. I'm really yeah. glad to see him do that. Yeah. I always thought of business in the form of money. Yeah. And that maybe that's wrong to think like that. But I love the banjo. Obviously, I love the banjo. You hear me play, you know I love the banjo. But it was also a money gimmick, too. Mm-hmm. Not a gimmick, a money thing, too. Yeah. And uh, if you don't, it's like a doctor or any profession you're in. If you don't make a living at it, it's not worth it. It's it's nothing. Do you think that a lot of artists and bands, both then and now, don't understand that concept? They don't have any idea because I think country music has outgrown itself, I think. Yeah. I mean, Garth Brooks just filled an 85,000-seat stadium yeah. at Notre Dame. And that's unheard of. That's absolutely unheard of. Um uh, you you put um, um, I can't think of their names right now, but you put them at Bridgestone Arena here in town of about twenty two thousand people. Yeah, that's unheard of. And and in the sixties, if you could go out and if you could have two thousand twenty five hundred people, you're doing good. Oh yeah, really good. We went to Japan and had two thousand people a night. Wow. For a week over there, and. Uh, and we just thought, man, we need to come over here <laughs> more often. <laughs> we need to come over here, that's for sure. But uh, the the music business in itself is not easy. Mm-hmm. It's really a hard thing, and you, in order to, you have to be dedicated. Yeah. It's just like playing the banjo. You you can't. You have to be dedicated. Yeah. You can't just do it one day you have to be dedicated i mean you have to want it more than anything else in the world because it'll kick you in the rump if you ain't careful yeah it will Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. 
So you've heard us talk about Samson's Hair Care's hair pomade with its all-day hold and signature smell. Now they have something for the other hair on your face, your beard. Fellas, I don't know about you, but I love sporting a beard. It makes me feel so manly, and let's face it, the ladies love it. However, what they don't love is a beard that's unkempt and out of control, and when you're scratching all day like a dog. That's where Samson's Hair Care can help you. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil to help you regain control of your beard. The beard oil is all about stopping irritation. It makes the beard softer and moisturizes the skin underneath so you're not scratching all day. They also have their beard balm, which helps you regain control of your beard, help it lay the way it's supposed to so you don't have them wiry hairs sticking out, and it makes your beard softer as well. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil at samsonshaircare.com, and they know that bluegrassers need to look sharp. So that's why if you use code BLUEGRASS, you'll save 10% off whether you want the beard oil, the beard balm, the uh, Samson's Hair Care Pomade, or all three. Check it out at samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 10% off. It's all at samsonshaircare.com. Code BLUEGRASS. When you guys became members of the Opry, you know, at that time there were other brother duos in country. Um, the Wilburn brothers, we mentioned them. The Leuven brothers were still around. Um, York brothers, I mean. There was a lot of them. What, what, made, oh yeah. what made the Osborne brothers stand out and so different from all the other brother acts at the time? The Leuvens, Wilburns, all the rest of them, going back to the Delmore brothers. I'm a big 30s. Delmore brothers. Fan. Yeah, but they all fought like cats and dogs. They all did. We never Especially did. Charlie and Ira. Yeah. Charlie and Ira, oh man. But we never did. Bobby really? and I never had an argument. We never did. Because I got to looking at Ira and Charlie after we got to know them and Doyle and Teddy and Jim and Jesse, just like cats and dogs. And I, I thought, but they see each other every day. Yeah. They're with each other on the road. And then when they're home, they're with each other here too. Yeah. And so I told Bobby, I said, what we need to do, I said, we don't see things alike. And we, Bobby and I don't. And that's he, good. Yeah. He sees yeah. black and I see white. You know, it's just that thing almost with everything. Yeah. It's like that. And I said, what we need to do is we go on the road and work and, and we do everything we need to do. But when we're home, we don't know each other. We don't see each other. Our families don't buddy up to each other and all that stuff and that's what we did we got along famously yeah we we never we never had an argument never why do you think that was good for your music that you guys saw things differently because we saw both sides of the coin mm -hmm. um bobby would but bobby never did he never did say too much about if I made a decision on something, he never did say too much about it. If he made a decision on something, I never did say too much about it either. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we both respected each other's abilities. You know, yeah. Bobby was a, you couldn't believe how good a musician he was. A better musician than I ever thought of being. Really? Oh yeah. He could play a piano, he could play, he could electric guitar, he could play a fiddle. I mean, he, he just, he was like that. And people don't realize what a great mandolin player he was. You know, did, did you realize that I would say 95% of mandolin players now play the style that Bobby started yeah. in 1951 or something like that, 52? Yeah. They play that style. It was interesting. I did, was uh, talking to Sam Bush, I guess it was a couple years ago, about uh, the Osmond Brothers' influence on his music. And he said, you know, Bobby's mandolin playing was kind of the, that was the big shot for him as far as, because oh, yeah. it was so different. Yeah. And he said it wasn't, you know, most, so many people focus on Bobby singing and he, he was kind of the opposite. He focused so much on the picking. And then as he grew older, then he realized like, yeah. man, <laughs> guys got can sing too he was truly one of those dual threats he was he's he's probably the best voice high voice to come along ever yeah. ever 
uh, our Leuven would be a close second, if not a first. He's that same. Yeah. He, when Bobby sings, you believe what he says. Yeah. You he 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 makes a. There's a quality to his voice. It's just different, yeah. and everybody has asked asked me, what do you point to as your success? And what success we had, you can point right to Bobby. He couldn't be duplicated. Yeah. You couldn't. There was nobody could duplicate him. They could play the banjo and and the mandolin and, and all that stuff, but they couldn't duplicate what a, what he did. Yeah. And so you got to say, that's probably the reason. When did you realize that Bobby's singing was different than everybody oh, else's? 1950. What? What? You remember a song called "Sweet Thing"? Yeah. Listen to that. Yeah. If that doesn't tell you something, there's something wrong with you. That boy put a hurting on that song. Oh, he did. He did. He did. He did. He just, he's awfully good. And he's still doing what? it. I'm proud of him. I love it. I really do. That's awesome. It's, he's just, we had a good time. Children having a good time. That's that's what I'm, <laughs> when I look at us. And we, we did, too. We We enjoyed every bit of it. It was a good ride, too, I'm telling you. As we look ahead to 2020, there's one place you need to go to make sure you maximize your time and your potential. BestSelf.co. BestSelfCo provides all sorts of productivity tools to help you get the most out of your day and your year. Right now in my office, I'm looking at a wall calendar from BestSelfCo that I've used all year long, and it's a great way to see where you've been and where you're going, and you know that I've got a uh, 2021 in the wings ready to go for when uh, the ball drops on New Year's Eve. Get the Best Self Planner, brand new six-month productivity tool to help you break down uh, your months and your weeks and get the most out of your time. They also have a Best Self Journal that you've heard Santana talk about. It's made in 13-week increments, perfect for the college student or someone that's just looking to achieve more on the clock and off the clock. Check out the Best Self Journal, Best Self planner, their wall calendar, their weekly action plans that I use at the beginning of the week to make sure I have all of my to-do lists in check. They have project action guides and so much more. Bestself.co. That's bestself.co. Use code bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. As we look to maximize 2020, let's all do it together. Go to bestself.co. Use code bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. You mentioned one of them early records. Now, in them MGM days is uh, when y'all cut uh, Once More. How how did the development of the High Lead Trio come about? Because um, that, that's that's when you... There's a lot of things you think of when you think of the Osmer Brothers, and the, oh, High, Lead, the was, High Lead Trio is top of the list. Sit the bar. Um, Bobby and Red Allen and I were on the way back from Wheeling to Dayton, one night after Saturday night, and uh, Dusty Owens had written a song called Once More, and so we were trying to learn to sing that song because we liked it a great deal, and we were going to record pretty quick after that, maybe the next week or so, and um, it just didn't work. We, we couldn't do it with a regular lead, and I can't, I don't know if it was me or whether it was Bobby, and he said, if you want to do that song, this is the key that I can sing it best in. And I think I said, well, what we'll do is just sing our parts below you then. Mm-hmm. And you just do that whole thing. And then it hit me, you know, if we did that, we could hire any guitar player we wanted. Yeah. Because all he had to do was sing that low tenor part. They wouldn't have to sing as high as Bobby. No, yeah. they so, wouldn't have to sing anything. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know? yeah. he could sing the verse and the chorus in that same place up there. Yeah. Man. And that 
really that that sort of changed everything around a little bit. Yeah. But uh, once more, got up to number eleven. I think it was. I think national, you're right on that one. A national chart. I think that's right. And uh, it's a funny thing, after it got pretty good. I mean, this for this is 1957, 58. Yeah. And uh, we were with MGM and and um, Wesley Rose, who's in business with Roy Acuff, of course, with Acuff Rose. So we did once more, and it got some attention. So Roy. Recorded it too. Oh yeah, it was not. It was he saw. It was all right, you know. And so Roy Acuff's no Bobby Osborne though. No. And so <laughs> we came down in probably 1960 or 60 something like that, and were guests on the Opry. And uh, Roy came over and he said, and we did once more. He said, you know. I'm glad you all did that song, too, because he said I had a pretty good record on that. <laughs> and I thought, you old idiot, we did it first. <laughs> and I said, you copied us. <laughs> but I thought, well, he's Roy Acuff. Let him think what he wants to think. He's going to anyway. But it was kind of funny. Uh, he he thought he had done it first. I guess he actually thought it, you know. Yeah. But. What are some of your best backstage at the Opry stories? Uh, I'm down there one time with, I can't remember who I was standing there talking to. And this is at the Ryman. Mm -hmm. And I'm standing from the audience, it would be backstage left as far back on the stage against that wall back there and you know they have windows back there that's huge and so I'm saying you know when you look at this old building a lot of people have been here and gone on and I said can you imagine the ghost that's in this building every Saturday night and I said that, and I'll swear to you, just as I said that, this whole this window just went, whoop, <laughs> opened up. <laughs> and whoever, whoever I was talking to said, I'm getting the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 oh, there's so many. Um, George Morgan, who had, was, had a... a eye problem one of his eyes was crossed oh, really? and when I went there as a kid George and Jack England treated me like a human the rest of them didn't yeah they just treated me as you mean some... when you were working with Bill yeah when yeah. I was 14 I mean I didn't know anything and both of them treated me like a human though and nobody else George did. Morgan and then Jack of Johnny and Jack right? George Morgan and Jack England and I'll never forget it neither so later George and I are sitting back stage at the Ryman just sitting there on a chair talking and uh, George I mean he's had this cross-eyed and that's all there was to it you know but what the heck's that you know and uh, Billy Grammer came walking by I've got to travel on thing oh yeah. yeah and Billy Grammer held his watch way out to like that and he said George what time is it and, uh, Held off to the side. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where his eye was going yeah. that way, and he could see it. And uh, George just sat there, and Billy walked on, and he, George told me, he said, you know, he don't have to do that. Yeah. He said, man, I have spent thousands of dollars trying to get this corrected, and I can't. Yeah. And he said he just didn't have to do that. So later on in life, after George is gone and all this stuff, Billy went blind. Really? Is that not amazing? Wow. He went blind. Wow. That's that's just like God saying, you know, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but I mean, there, uh, Tommy Jackson and George Jones were down there one night, just out of their minds. They'd had way, way too much to drink. They had to lead both of them out on a side door of the opera house on my seat. <laughs> they were really weird. And George wanted to sing, they wouldn't let him. And uh, I think I think Del Reeves was 
dipping into it too, and he got out there and tried to sing like George. <laughs> it just goes on and on. That Bill Monroe had that banjo player, and those old microphones, they were these big Altec mics like that, and they would lift right off the stand like that, but they were heavy. Yeah. And so <laughs> Bill... Bill's going to play. Seemed like it was Molly and Tim Brooks, and the band just starts it off. And he said, Here's an old timer, one called Molly and Tim Brooks. And the banjo player was trying to adjust his mic, and there he stood with that mic in his, in his hand. <laughs> oh my gosh. And Bill had a guy with him that just was, he couldn't see, and he had, I mean, thick glasses. And somehow, at the Ryman, you had Mike over there, one here, here, and there. We always worked on number three. And somehow, that guy, I can't remember who that was. I wish I could. But that guy got over there where the announcers stood. <laughs> he went to the he wrong was line. over there. <laughs> 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 and Bill singing. It was on the spring, one sunny day. Over here, boy. <laughs> and I've heard the tape back. You hear him say it. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, I mean, the first time I was there, Hank Williams, uh, he would come in, and there was a stage manager named Vito Pelletieri, I think was his name. And uh, this one night, Hank, oh, he was... Man, I was standing right there, and, you know, he talked to me one time. Really? Yeah, Hank Williams did. I was standing back there, and just... Well, were you 14, 15 working yeah, with Bill? 14, yeah. Wow. And it was in July, and just hot. Oh, my gosh. And hot, ain't it, boys? I looked over, and, it, and I didn't know who he was. And he looked there, and he said, it's really hot here, ain't it? I said, yeah, it sure is. And when he left, I can't remember if somebody was there, and I said, who is that guy? And he said, that's Hank Williams. <laughs> You'd never seen him before. No, I didn't know you what he was You just heard like. him, yeah. And, uh, but this one night, he came in out there, and he was a little bit late getting there, and he boy, he was wound up, I mean bad, and had a white. If you've seen pictures of Hank, you've seen him. He had this white suit on, made by Nudie in California. And uh, Vito was standing right there in the stage and he got Hank and he said, son, just walk straight ahead of you about 10 feet and you'll be right at the microphone. And Hank walked out there and he sang Cold Cold Heart and he encored, I think it was seven times. Yeah, unreal. And I got to looking at him, and his his leg would be like here, and that pants is there, and you could see his leg move inside that pants. He was that skinny. Yeah. Oh, he just, it was just, but, I mean, you know, it's been a good ride. Welcome back to the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, an absolute honor to feature part one of our conversation with Bluegrass Hall of Famer and banjo phenom Sonny Osborne. Uh, when you, you look at uh, the Osborne brothers' career, of course, everybody knows Rocky Top. And hearing what a risk it was for Bobby and Sonny to record that song, I think is a, a great lesson in believing in yourself for all those that were tuned in today. What do you think ty yeah that is a great lesson i think what's really neat about uh sunny and bobby and all those guys from back in that era that originator era is they did take risks and taking risks helped them create a legacy and i think it's a great lesson uh, when they did talk about uh, the debate about drums and steel guitar and adapting to country music and 
trying to survive in the music business, especially at that time, it was all about taking chances. And uh, I'm glad they were risk takers because they uh, were risk takers that left a great legacy for us all to follow. Oh, without question. So much of my favorite music comes from Bobby and Sonny, the Osborne brothers. And I, I like that Bobby and Sonny weren't ones to rest on their laurels. They're always looking for that next step, looking to, to write that next chapter in their career and what a legacy they left behind. It's particularly uh, inspiring for me to hear about some of the hard times that Sonny and Bobby faced in the music when they're, you know, working, uh, driving cabs in Dayton, Ohio, wondering if they're going to make it in this business. And then they catch a big break by teaming up with uh, Teddy and Doyle, the Wilburn brothers, who really helped get them onto the Grand Ole Opry and help take their career to the next level. It's a great lesson in perseverance, if you ask me. Absolutely. And then being able to work with some of the greats in the business and going on to surviving not only the rock and roll boom, but surviving Jimmy Martin and all the uh, <laughs> fun that came <laughs> fun that came to working with that legend. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's the big takeaway is doing what they needed to do to have careers in the music that they love. So um, a great lesson for all of us. Sure. Part two of this conversation will be our season finale here on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Thank you guys so much for hanging with us through this first season as we learn how to make a podcast about bluegrass music. It's been a fun adventure, and we're so glad that this two-part episode with Sonny Osborne can wrap us up after a wonderful season one. Uh, we may even have a couple bonus episodes, so be sure to stay tuned and stay up to date by following uh, the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast on social media media where can folks find us ty walls of time podcast on facebook walls of time podcast website walls of time pod on twitter and check us out on spotify as well and our spotify playlist will be putting a bunch of osborne brothers music up there this week for you guys to listen to if you've heard a lot of it i'm sure many of you have all your life you can revisit some of those classics some of you younger folks can hear some great new osborne brothers for the first time i hope Absolutely. Any day is made brighter if you're listening to the Osborne Brothers. That's just a fact of life. And Ozzy is not in the band. That's it's true. Just Sonny. Yeah. God. It's just Sonny and uh, Bobby, not uh, Ozzy. <laughs> And there's a and there is a difference between the Osborne brothers and the brothers Osborne for those younger folks that might not know. There's a reason that the the brothers Osborne go by that name and reverse it because there's only one Osborne brothers. And we're glad to have a half of that uh, famous bluegrass duo on the podcast today. Part two of our convo with Sonny Osborne will be uh, next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. Go to wallsoftimepodcast.com for all the details. We'll be back next time with part two of our conversation with Sonny Osborne. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.